Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here, and uh, it is good to have you with us. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, we are glad that you are here, and if, if you are new to us, um, I would love to be able to greet you and, and meet you after the service if you have time to stick around. Um, and if you are new, uh, you're joining us in the midst of a sermon series that we've been in, in the book of Philippians, this New Testament book uh, written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. And so this morning we're looking at uh, the end of chapter 3 and the very beginning of chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Philippians 3. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, in just a moment, the uh, passage will be projected on the screens in front of you. But if you've been with us, you know that one of the uh, pressing, one of the dominant themes in this book is the theme of joy, of rejoicing. We see this uh, word used and this theme repeated throughout these four chapters. The Apostle Paul talks about rejoicing and calls us to rejoice and having joy and Again, we see it in our passage this morning, because in chapter 4, verse 1, he calls the church at Philippi, my joy. That that's who they are, that these people are those people that he loves, that he longs for. They are his joy and crown. They are his beloved. And the affection that he has for this church is beautiful. It's, it's wonderful. The the way that he cares for them and loves them through his words. And it's because of his affection for them, because of his love, that he's going to warn them and encourage them. And he's warning and encouraging them about who they are to watch, what they are to see, who it is they are to imitate. And this isn't just a warning and an encouragement for the church at Philippi, it's a warning and encouragement for us. And so let's go ahead and read Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But, you, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we come to it acknowledging our need for you. Lord, there are many things that pull at our attention. There are many things that grasp for our hearts. But we know what we need is more of you. And so we ask that you would uh, be present amongst us now. That you would lead us and guide us. That you would allow the words of my mouth to honor you and the meditations of our hearts to please you so that today and all of our days we would worship and honor you. For you are God and our King, and we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want you to imagine a scenario. Just take a moment. I want you to think about um, you have to have a very serious, very important, very major medical procedure. Okay, maybe a transplant of some kind. You need a, a lung transplant, or, or you're going to have heart surgery, or you're going to have brain surgery. 
Okay, so you can imagine what might go through your mind, what might go through your heart if, if that kind of procedure was coming your way, right? There'd be nervousness, there'd be anxiety, there'd be some worry. And so leading up to the procedure, you go to your doctor's office and you're sitting in the office, you're waiting for your doctor to come in. And, and as you're sitting there waiting, you're looking at the walls and you're seeing all the diplomas and the certificates and you're starting to feel a little bit better because this doctor has graduated from some of the best medical schools. Maybe, maybe they went to Johns Hopkins and they went to undergrad at Stanford. And, and so you're starting to feel a little bit better about this procedure. And they come in, sit down, this doctor you know, he or she, you, you start talking to them, and, and you ask them questions like, well, well, how many times have you performed this procedure? And how many hours have you put in in the OR, right? And before they start telling you these things, they, they recount, well, you know, I graduated top of my class. I was valedictorian. Had the best grade point average, you know, my, I came with the best references. I studied under the best professors. I've read all the books. I aced all the tests. But how many hours have you been in the OR? How many times have you performed this procedure? And very sly like the doctor sitting across the table from you goes, well, well, I've actually never done this procedure before. You're my first. And in fact, I've never set foot in an OR before this day as a surgeon. I've been a patient. I've been under the knife, but I've never actually had to wield a scalpel. I've never even seen this procedure done. But don't worry. I've read all the books. And I aced all the tests and look at my diplomas. Now, how are you feeling about this procedure? <laughs> You're not feeling too good anymore, are you? You're not feeling very good about this procedure, right? Like all that nervousness, all that anxiety, all that worry that you had before, it, it doesn't even compare to the amount of anxiety and worry you have now. And we know why, right? Because credentials and knowledge and education, while they are good and needed, there's still something missing, isn't there? Experience. Watching another perform this surgery, having a more experienced doctor show them, train them, walk with them through this procedure. Like, that's what we need, right? I mean, we know that it, the importance of watching another, of standing beside someone else for our own development, right? This is why pilots aren't allowed to fly commercial jets as soon as they write their last exam, and why doctors go through years of residency, and why architects have to spend hours upon hours working under another architect before they're given their stamp. Because to grow and to mature in one's profession is done not just by books and knowledge and learning, but by observing and watching and imitating. Now, this is true not only in our professional lives, but it's also true in our lives of faith. We've already heard in this book how Paul has put before us examples of what faithfulness looks like, right? A few chapters ago, he talked about Timothy and Epaphroditus, and Paul put before us these two men because he knows that our lives are formed by the people that we watch, those that we have apprenticed under. And so he puts before us Timothy and Epaphroditus. These are examples of faithfulness. Apprentice yourself to them. But now Paul expands it beyond Timothy and Epaphroditus and says in verse 17, Join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk 
according to the example you have in us. Join in imitating me, Paul says. So who are you imitating? What is catching your imagination? What's taking hold of your thoughts? Who is informing your actions? Because, friends, the truth is, is that someone or something will. You are going to apprentice yourself to an idea or to a person, and that person or idea, it will shape how you live. So who's shaping your life? Well, Paul presents us with two options, two options for us to imitate. One he warns us about, and the other he encourages us to follow. We're going to start with the warning. The warning, the, those that Paul warns us of are citizens of this world. That's what he calls them, and we see their, what characterizes them in verse 19. He says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So we see there are four qualities that are marked by these uh, citizens of this world. We're going to start with the last one and move our way to the first. Paul says that their minds are set on earthly things. Now when we hear this phrase, earthly things, we shouldn't think like everything of this earth. Okay, so like we go up on a mountaintop, we look over the valley, we stand at the edge of an ocean, we look out and go, ah, that's just an earthly thing, that's not that big of a deal. (laughs) That's not what Paul's saying, okay? When Paul says earthly things, he's not talking about the goodness of God's creation because God said his creation is good, right? When we're staying on top of a mountain, when we're looking over a valley, when we're looking at the uh, sky filled with the stars, we are supposed to be in awe and wonder and we are to celebrate our creator who has creatively made these things. Those aren't the earthly things Paul is talking about. What Paul is talking about is not God's good creation, He is talking about those parts of his creation that are the sphere of sin. Those things that don't belong to the heavenly realm. That's what their minds are set upon, earthly things. But he goes on, he says, they glory in their shame. Now that Greek phrase right there, their shame, is often associated with sexual immorality and sexual excess. And so citizens of this world, they boast of their immoral sexual engagement, of their sexual conquest. They consume it. They take it in. They're filled with it. They take pride in it. They glory in what should be shameful. They glory in their shame. The third thing is their belly is their God. Now, Paul isn't simply speaking of gluttony or the overindulgence of food and drink. It it certainly would count towards that. But he's talking about something actually much broader, something beyond that. He's talking about any misplaced desire or delight. And so it could be food or drink, but it could be a whole host of other things. It could be any pleasure that we take, any pleasure that we pursue that impedes our pursuit of Jesus. Their belly is their God. They glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things and their end is destruction you see the result of a life lived as a citizen of this world is judgment and so we see why paul would warn us about watching and imitating citizens of this world don't we but you know before we pass over that 
before we move on and we just think, well, well, those are those people. That's them, those people out there, whoever those out there people might be in your mind. Before we pass over this, we, we need to see what else Paul says about these citizens. Before he describes their characteristics, he says in verse 18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And so what Paul is doing here, what, what most commentators think Paul is talking about, is that there were a group of people who Paul actually talked to the Philippians about, and maybe even put before them as, as like, these are faithful people, but over time, they actually turned away. That they professed professed faith in Christ at one time and perhaps joined themselves with the church, but over time they didn't persevere. Instead, it became clear that they weren't lovers of Christ, but instead they were enemies of Christ. That that's who these people are. That they were once part of God's church. And Paul's warning us of them, and actually Jesus warns us of them. There are a number of times where Jesus speaks of this reality. One of the times he talks about in regards to the parable of the four soils. You remember this? Or the, the sower and the seed, right? A sower went out, Jesus tells us, and he cast his seed, and the seed fell on four different kinds of soil, right? And the two extremes are easy for us to understand, right? The, the one soil is the path, right? And the bird comes and he takes the, the seed away, and, and it never has any opportunity to grow, to develop, Jesus tells us that that path is like those who, who hear the word but reject it immediately. And then the last soil, the fourth soil, is the good soil where the seed falls and, and up from it sprouts great harvest, right? Great produce. And it, it harvests a, a, a produce of, of 40, 60, 100 times beyond itself. And Jesus said that is the soil of, of the believer, the one who perseveres to the end. But in between, we have rocky and thorny soil, do you remember how Jesus described these two soils? He said of the rocky soil, he said that those are the people who hear the word and they receive it with joy. But in time of tribulation and persecution, they fall away. And then he says of the thorny soil, that those are the people who hear the word, but the cares and deceitfulness of the world choke it out. Now what is fascinating and also terrifying about those two soils is that for a time they looked just like the fourth right i mean something started to grow something started to develop into our eyes it would have looked like they were going to be harvestable right they were going to produce maybe 20 30 40 times its yield but what Jesus tells us is that over time, they're choked out. Over time, tribulation or persecution or cares or the deceitfulness of the world choke them out. To our, our, our eyes, they look strong and vibrant, but in reality, they were rootless. And their minds were on earthly things. And so Paul warns us. Now, in warning us, he, he's not calling us, he's not, he's not telling us, like, now we need to um, try and figure out, like, who are the thorny people around us? <laughs> like, that, that's not the point of that. For us to try and figure out, like, is that rocky soil? Is it good soil? You know, like, that, that's not the point. Why Paul is warning us and telling us about these people who have once heard and turned away is so that we would be mindful of who it is we are following. 
So who are you following? Well, at this point, because of the warning about the citizens of the world, maybe some of us would want to pull out of the world. Like, like the, the, the danger is too great, so I'm just going to disengage. I'm going to remove myself. But that's not what Paul is saying. That's not what we are to do. That's not what Scripture calls us to do because Jesus himself in John 17 prayed that his disciples explicitly would not be taken from this world, but that we would actually be in the world, just not of it. And so Paul's warning isn't cause for us to disengage from the world around us. Paul is warning us not to be conformed to the world around us. And we are not conformed to the world as we imitate citizens of another world. That's what Paul calls us to imitate. You see, he warned us about citizens of this world. He encourages us to imitate citizens of another world. He says to imitate him. And he calls himself a citizen of heaven. Look at verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. So what characterizes this citizenship? What are we to imitate? Well, the first thing we see is we are to imitate compassion. Compassion. Look how Paul spoke about those who had fallen away. Now I tell you, even with tears. With tears. Paul wept over those who turned out to be enemies of Jesus. Now, y'all, this is significant. This is a, a beautiful a uh, beautiful model that is put before us because it is so easy for us to have disdain for those that we oppose. It is easy to despise them and want their ill. And I know it's easy and I know this is a problem because I hear it even from those within the church. Right? I mean, all it takes is a click and you can see it. That sometimes believers will speak of those outside of the church with hatred and with disdain and with a disregard for the dignity of those made in God's image. But y'all, that is reflective of worldly citizenship, not heavenly. Paul wept over the lost. And in the Gospels, Jesus had compassion on the crowds. And why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so as citizens of heaven, as we seek to imitate those with compassion, we don't gloat over them when we are right, and we don't show disdain in the midst of disagreement. We show compassion for those in our midst and those outside of our midst. See, a mark of heavenly citizenship is compassion. But another mark is anticipation. Look what, G what Paul says in verses 20 through 21. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Now what's amazing about the book of Philippians, and I haven't pointed this out yet, but maybe some of you have noticed, maybe you've been tracking, but that in every single chapter of the book of Philippians, Paul refers to Jesus' return. I don't know if you've noticed that, but every single chapter, Paul talks about the return of Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 10, he speaks of the day of Christ. In chapter 2, verse 16, he says, let us hold fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ. In chapter 3, we have the passage before us, and in chapter 4, verse 5, he says, the Lord is at hand. And so we see that Paul's vision, his attention, his anticipation is for that day when Jesus will return. 
A mark of heavenly citizenship is anticipating heaven and looking to Christ's return because with Christ's return will come resurrection. Will come resurrection. That's what Paul said, right? Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. That's what awaits us. That is what heaven will entail. Now, that's very different than the way our culture appropriates heaven, isn't it? I mean, our culture thinks about heaven as like these disembodied spirits that are just kind of floating around, right? Just kind of floating around. Maybe there's some wings, maybe there's a harp, and maybe there's like this like real mellow, like kind of dentist office music playing. You know, it's kind of really soft, and everybody's kind of hushed and quiet. Like that's how the, you know, that's how our culture thinks of heaven, right? But that's not how the Bible thinks of heaven. What does the Bible present us with? glorious bodies that are like Christ's, not disembodied spirits. That's not what Paul is looking towards, a disembodied existence. He is looking to a bodily, fleshy existence because that's what Jesus's body is like, right? You remember after he was resurrected, he wasn't this ghost floating around. He could be touched and held. You remember the women came and clung to him and held on to him. And what did he say? Like, he didn't they, they didn't go like this. It's like, where'd he go? Like, it's missed, right? They could touch him. And he said, not yet. Don't hold on to me yet. Right? And when he presented himself before his disciples, he said, like, look at the marks on my hands. Look at the, the scar on my side, right? Touch it. And he ate with them. And he drank with them. Jesus himself had a bodily resurrection, and from that, from the ascension until evermore, there is flesh in heaven. Because Jesus, in his body, sits at God's right hand on the throne of David. It is bodily, and that is what awaits us. Flesh and blood, muscles and bones, bodies free from disease and decay, free from sickness and sin, that is what awaits us. Resurrection. That our bodies will be turned glorious like Christ's. And y'all, until that day, we live today looking at people and imitating people who anticipate that day. Who are longing for that day. Who are looking forward to and expecting that Jesus will return and in his return will experience resurrection. Those are the people that we imitate I mean, that's what Paul is presenting for us, right? Every single chapter. Paul's not too heavenly-minded. We're not heavenly-minded enough. We look forward with great anticipation towards resurrection. And as we anticipate that day, we do so with perseverance. That's what Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You see, having been warned about the path of destruction and encouraged to follow those of heavenly citizenship, Paul says, stand firm. Stand firm, not in your own strength. Hold fast, not in the power of the will. Remain true, not in this world, but stand firm, persevere in the Lord. You see, we persevere and we stand firm in the Lord by looking to those who are persevering in the Lord. So who is that? Who are you looking to imitate? 
Whose example are you keeping gaze upon? Who's shaping your walk with Christ? You know, the people that we are to imitate ultimately are people who imitate Jesus. Paul uses this language of imitation a number of times throughout his letters. But in one of those times, in 1 Corinthians 11, he says explicitly, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That our lives, in our lives, we are to imitate and follow people. Not because they're the most gifted and not because they're the most influential or the most knowledgeable. But we, look, we follow those, we imitate those who are following Christ whose lives are demonstrations of what it means to be heavenly citizens. Of perseverance and anticipation. Like, the people I go to in my mind who are demonstrations of heavenly citizens, none of you have ever met. And you've never heard their names because they don't have a big platform and they don't have a book contract, but they are demonstrators to me of what it means to be a heavenly citizen. Because they persevere and they anticipate and they're full of compassion. That this is what we are to imitate because that is the most important citizenship there is. Look, you, you can be an American, you could be a Canadian, you could be from some other country, but, and, and you are to seek the good of wherever it is that God has placed you. But ultimately, our citizenship, our allegiance belongs in heaven, not here. That we are to be people who live in this world, but living as people of another world. And so y'all, at the very least, this is a call for the leaders of the church to live heavenly lives worthy of imitation. At the very least, it is a call to the leaders to live this way. But it's not just for the leaders. Like the rest of us, we can't, you, you can't go, look, well, I'm not an elder, I'm not a deacon, I don't lead Bible, so whew, I don't need to worry about this. <laughs> no, Paul doesn't let us off the hook. It's not just for leaders. Paul actually says, look, he, he puts before, him, before the church himself and Timothy and Epaphroditus, but he also says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So you see what he's saying? He's saying, imitate Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, as we imitate Jesus, but also imitate those who imitate us as we imitate Jesus. Do you see that? So we are all to be examples to one another. We are all to be examples of this heavenly citizenship, of compassion, of anticipation, of perseverance, to be example of what heavenly citizens are. Because, friends, if you are in Christ, that's what you are. You are a citizen of another world. You no longer belong to this world. Your citizenship is not of this world. It is of another world. Because of Christ and what he has done, you are citizens of heaven. And so we are called to live that way. For the sake of one another and for the sake of this world. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have not left us to ourselves or our own devices, but by the power of your spirit, you have brought us into your family and you have bestowed upon us a new citizenship, that we belong with you and we are part of your people, citizens of another realm, citizens of heaven. And so we pray that you would help us to live that way today. Turn our gaze towards you and help us to live in this world as those who belong to you 
as those who are from another world. Help us, we pray, and all God's people said together, Amen.